Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 43, The Greatest of All Monarchs. Now, if you're a medieval king of a major European empire, I imagine you don't expect an easy life, and certainly Henry didn't get one. But in the end, it was not the problems of ruling an empire or the enmity of the French king that brought him down. It was his own flesh and blood. Now, of course, it's not quite as simple as that. In Louis of France, he had a dogged opponent at least, and in Louis' son, Philippe, he had an unscrupulous and brilliant one who would in the end bring the Angevin dynasty down. First of all, a quick reprise of the basic facts, just to remind ourselves. Henry, of course, has married Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1152, when he was 19 and Eleanor 30. Their marriage, as far as can be told, would appear to have started pretty well. There's no way of knowing how close they were, of course, but the speed with which Eleanor chose Henry after she got her divorce from Louis suggests they'd planned the thing together. And as further evidence, there's the impressive number of children. Eleanor were to have ten children in all, two by Louis and eight by Henry. The sons who survived in all of age were Henry, Richard, Geoffrey, and then the youngest, John. But at some point, their marriage falls to pieces, and this is more than usually relevant since Eleanor is at the centre of all her children's revolts. From the start, their marriage was reputed to be turbulent, and you've got to think that the odds are heavily in favour of the odd spat or two. Eleanor had proved more than independent with Louis, and Henry was hardly a pushover himself. Henry also had continuous affairs. It's been suggested by one of the chroniclers that he didn't do so during the early years of the marriage, and it's theoretically possible, but not terribly likely. We certainly know that he fathered at least one bastard, Geoffrey, but this could have been before the marriage with Eleanor. Geoffrey's mother was Echini, described by Walter Mapp as base-born, common harlot who stooped to all uncleanness. But in fact, Geoffrey was to prove far and away the most loyal of all Henry's sons. There were also three girls, Matilda, Eleanor and Joan, who were all successfully married off for reasons of state, of course. This must have been terribly hard on both daughter and parents. Matilda, for example, was married to Henry the Lion of Saxony, and the little princess left her parents at the age of 11 to go there, which sounds terribly hard. But the trousseau, at least, was grand. It cost £4,500, which was about a quarter of the entire royal revenue for that year. Having mistresses is what kings do at this time. Think of Henry I and his 20 bastards. So it's just not possible to assume that because Henry slept around, his marriage was on the rocks. But somewhere around 1165, he started an affair with Rosamond Clifford. An affair which has generated all manner of legends and romantic stories. In these stories, Henry built a labyrinth at Woodstock where he hid Rosamond from Eleanor. In others, Eleanor captured Rosamond and poisoned her, or in one, even roosted her between two fires, stripped naked. 
sadly, that's what most of them are, just stories. But the affair almost certainly happened, and Rosamond was probably the love of Henry's life. And somewhere about the same time, Eleanor set up her own permanent, separate court at Argentin in Poitiers. This was the court that became famous to the troubadours, the centre of the poetry, music and tradition of courtly love. So sometime in the late 1160s, Eleanor and Henry became estranged, and quite violently so. In the events that followed, Eleanor would be whipping up her sons against Henry, not calming them down. And somehow, of course, they managed to produce children who were heroically selfish and disloyal to their father. Who knows if it was nature or nurture, but it could have been a bit of both. Gerald of Wales portrayed Henry as a doting father when he wrote, On his legitimate children, he lavished in their childhood more than a father's affection. Henry was rather indulgent. Walter Mapp recounts that Henry the young king could bring his father round by simply bursting into tears. And on the other hand, he combined this with being something of an absentee father. In 1161, Archbishop Theobald begged him to come home to see them, commenting that even the most hard-hearted father could hardly bear to have them out of his sight for so long. Meanwhile, Anna actively competed with Henry for the children's affections and seems to have had been much closer to them. So, for example, she shared a very close relationship with Richard to the extent where she called him the Great One. I couldn't declare myself a parenting expert, but I'd reckon calling one of your children Great One could just possibly puff them up a bit. Anyway, the result of all this was a nightmare of a family. Geoffrey, the legitimate, himself acknowledged it when he said... Do you not know it is our proper nature that none of us should love the other, but that always brother against brother and son against father, we try our utmost to injure one another? So Henry's family was trouble, and in 1173, trouble duly came knocking at the Angevin door. As we've seen previously, Henry had already given a pretty clear view of how the empire would be split up when he died. In 1172, Richard had been formally invested as the Duke of Aquitaine, which suited him right down to the ground. Richard was a child of the South who loved music and the troubadours of Eleanor's court. Geoffrey was to have Brittany, Henry was to have England, Normandy and Jean Joux, and John Lackland was a problem. It was in dealing with the problem that provided the flashpoint. In 1173, Henry arranged for John to marry the daughter of the Count of Maurienne, and as part of the deal, agreed to give John three castles for his own personal use. Now this got Henry the Young King proper blazing. These castles were in the areas he was supposed to inherit, and at the moment he didn't have any castles or land of his own, while all his brothers seemed to be nicely set up. Now as a piece of selfishness, this is pretty rich. After all, the Young King was going to get the big prize when the Old King died. And also the young king has been no doubt rightly accused of being a feckless, vain, empty-headed boy who just wanted a load of cash to keep up a film star lifestyle. Without the films, obviously. Modern historians have very much gone with this approach, and no doubt they're right. But it is worth noting that contemporaries absolutely loved him. As far as they were concerned, he was the model of what a prince should be. Gracious, affable, liberal. He and William the Marshal excelled in the fabulous tournaments and cut the required dash. And this, after all, was the equivalent of the modern film star. And he was royalty as well. The two images, in fact, were not mutually exclusively. Basically, our Henry was a charming airhead. But the young king did have a point. It was also his job to cut a dash 
and maintain a household for himself and his wife, and he had no patrimony to help him to do that. He was entirely dependent on Dad's handouts. So, in February 1173, Henry, Eleanor and the young king and Richard held a week of lavish banquets to celebrate John's betrothal to the four-year-old Alice of Maurienne. At the end of which, the poor little poppet was left by her father in Eleanor's household. At the event, Count Raymond of Toulouse advised Henry to be suspicious of his wife and sons. Henry immediately discounted any thought that Eleanor would be guilty of any such treachery, but the young king rather confirmed his unreliability by throwing a wobbly about the giving up of his three castles. So Henry left, keeping the young king close, even insisting that the young king share his bedroom. But at Chinon, the young king managed to slip away, and he headed straight for Louis of France. It is quite possible, in fact, that he pushed the button too early on a plot that was already in train, but Louis could hardly contain his glee. When Henry sent him a message, he refused to recognise the message, saying with mock horror that he had the real king with him, and who was this imposter writing to him? That, that's very funny, Louis. The young king swore before a great assembly of French barons not to make a separate peace, and he then slipped into Aquitaine and met with his mother, Geoffrey, and Richard. A quick age check here then. Henry is now 18, Richard is 16 and Geoffrey 15. Anyway, together, these three teenagers agreed to join the revolt. And Eleanor, of course, agreed to join them too. She stayed behind for a while to encourage the lords of Aquitaine to rise up against Henry and then left to join them in Paris. But Henry finally seems to have become aware about what was going on and he'd had his men following her. So despite changing into men's clothing, Eleanor was caught and locked up somewhere. She was to stay imprisoned for the next ten years. The revolt was broader than this, though. Henry had upset more than his family through the firm control and management of the empire and his barons. His reforms of justice were depriving the barons of the profits of their own justice. Basically, as Ralph of Deso said, Henry was trampling on the necks of the proud and the haughty, and quite frankly, the proud and the haughty were not keen on having their necks, or indeed any other part of their anatomy, trampled on and they intended to do something about it. The young king's defection was the signal for a widespread rising, which the young king encouraged by making extravagant promises of land and money to people like Philip of Flanders and Theobald of Blois. In England, four earls openly declared for him, Hugh Bigot of Norfolk, Robert of Leicester, Hugh, Earl of Chester, and William de Ferrers, Earl of Derby. Throughout the French possessions, barons declared their revolt against the oppressor from the north in Normandy, Maine, Anjou, Brittany, Aquitaine and Poitou. Meanwhile, the Scottish king William the Lion also saw his chance. Remember that his brother had been stripped of Northumbria and Cumbria by Henry. Well, William wanted them back. There were others who weren't open about their revolt, but whose sympathies clearly lay for the young king. The Count of Omal's defence of his castle, for example, against the rebels, was essentially the equivalent of asking them to knock before they came in. So it looked very black for Henry, but let's note a few things in his favour. With all the travelling around, Henry had created a mercenary army that met his requirement to be available at any time. He had a professional siege train with engineers and artillerymen to service mangonels, catapults and ballista, along with the new trebuchet. The trebuchet comes into operation about this time and is different in that it uses a counterweight rather than torsion for its energy. So it was able to throw bigger weights further. Henry had crossbowmen, usually recruited from south and eastern Europe, 
He had infantry and pikemen from the Low Countries and Spain and from Wales. And around the edges of this mercenary army were the hated Routier, a barely controlled predatory rabble that preyed on both enemies and the people from the lands they travelled through. There were some feudal forces included as well, basically a corps of cavalry that protected the army on the march. Now there was nothing new about using mercenaries, but the difference with Henry is that he created a standing, well-organised mercenary army with clearly defined duties and expertise. It was probably never more than 6,000 strong, but was more disciplined than any feudal army could ever be, and as long as Henry stopped many of his enemies combining, then it should be up to any task he needed for it. The other factors in his favour were well-maintained and garrisoned royal castles commanded by professional castellans. These castellans weren't hereditary, but could be changed at will. He had the support of a loyal, experienced set of royal officials that owed their advancement to him, and were now part of a professional administration, men like Richard de Lucy, for example, the Chief Justiciar of England, who had organised the defence in England, and this meant that Henry didn't have to be everywhere. The rebels focused initially on Normandy in 1173. The earls of Chester and Leicester met up with Louis, and instead of attacking through the Vexin, as would have been normal, they attacked towards Rouen from further south. Basically, it's a bit of a trade-off. The shortest route to Rouen is through the Vexin, but it's the best guarded by castles. Meanwhile, their ally, Philip of Flanders, attacked from the north of Normandy through Omal. And finally, the Bretons attacked into western Normandy. It sounds very threatening, but the whole thing quickly fell to pieces. Philip of Flanders, after being waved through Ormal, witnessed the death of his heir from a crossbow bolt. This seems to have knocked the stuffing out of him, and he retreated back across the border. This allowed Henry to concentrate on Louis, now on the verge of capturing the castle of Vernoy. Henry arrived just in time, and Louis fled, watching his rearguard being massacred by Henry's men. Henry then took just three days to march the 160 miles from Rouen to Dol in Brittany. The leaders of the Breton Revolt, Ruth de Fougere and Hugh of Chester, were completely unprepared by this. As far as they were concerned, Henry was far away being beaten up in Normandy. So Hugh and Ralph were captured, and that was the end of the Breton Revolt. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold. Richard de Lucy was meanwhile giving the rebels a hard time in England. The main focus of the revolt was in four main areas. Norfolk in the east, Leicester in the Midlands, Chester in the northwest, and then the Scots in the north. The aim in 1173 was to link these four up together. So Richard de Lucy charged up north to try and separate them before they could get together, and he drove the Scots back over the border. Then he heard Robert of Leicester landing with a group of Flemings in Norfolk, aiming to march west into Leicester. De Lucy charged down south again and attacked Leicester's army in the marshes near Bury St Edmunds. Despite being outnumbered, he routed them. Robert and his wife Petronilla were captured. The hated Flemish mercenaries suffered the common fate of defeated mercenaries, 
murdered and drowned in the bogs by the local people and looted of any of their possessions. So as starts go, it was for the rebels a pretty poor one. Nul point. They licked their wounds during the winter and they hatched another plan. This time, William the Lion would attack from Scotland along with some northern rebels led by Roger de Mowbray. Henry would be dragged back to England to deal with it and then meanwhile Louis could attack and take Normandy. William duly attacked in 1174 but Henry trusted his lieutenants, in this case the bastard son Geoffrey. Henry stayed in Maine and Anjou which was the pivot of the Angevinic Empire and whose control was essential. The rebels had some successes in England, notably capturing Nottingham Castle, for example, but they were held up by their inability to capture a string of royal castles in the north. And meanwhile, Geoffrey captured three of Roger de Mowbray's castles, and Roger de Mowbray himself was captured by some villagers in Derbyshire and sent to the Justicia. The whole thing was looking dangerously off track, and in the end it took the threat of an invasion by Philip of Flanders and the capture of Norwich by Hugh Bigard to get Henry to leave for England. Now, with him gone, Louis was in front of the walls of Rouen by the 22nd of July, 1174. But these small signs of success were short-lived. On the 17th of July, a local force loyal to Henry was stumbling around in the mists in England trying to find Prudhoe Castle. They came on a group of Scottish knights relaxing quietly in a meadow near to Annick Castle. So they attacked, and they captured or killed them all. One of those blokes turned out to be William the Lion. Within a month then, the rebellion in England was over. The few successes the rebels had had, like Nottingham, surrendered to Henry as he marched south. So to Louis' horror, in August, Henry marched into Rouen. Full of courage and military skill, Louis fled back to Paris and sued for peace. The Great Rebellion was well and truly over. In settling the peace, Henry showed that he really deserved a better family. Because in the main, he was completely reasonable and just tried to settle the underlying problems. So, at the Treaty of Mont-Louis, the young king was given two castles and a pension of 15000 a year, which should be enough to deal with any expenses he might have. Richard, likewise, was given two castles in Poitou and half the revenues of that county. Geoffrey was given half the rents from the dowry of his betrothed, Constance of Brittany. John, whose betrothed had died, was also given extensive lands, He was only six, but I'm sure he was very happy about it. Most of the rebels were forgiven and only minor penalties extracted. He was, though, harsher on William the Lion. At the Treaty of Falaise, William was forced to accept Scotland back as a fief of the English crown and was effectively reduced to the position of an English earl. And Eleanor didn't do well either, being kept firmly in prison. Henry could have been forgiven for thinking that he'd resolved the problems and now he could rest easy but in fact he knew full well that this wouldn't be the end of it, and the affair destroyed any trust between Henry and his elder sons. Henry wore his heart on his sleeve. He ordered an eagle to be painted on the walls of a chamber at Winchester. The eagle had four young eaglets sitting on top of it. When he asked what this picture meant, Henry said, The four young ones of the eagles are my four sons, who will not cease to persecute me even until death. The younger of them, who I even now embrace with such tender affection, will sometime at last insult me more grievously and more dangerously than all the others. John, the youngest son referred to, would indeed do just that. But for the moment, Henry was on the top of his game, and his power had never been more obvious. His empire was secure, his administrators loyal, his military power supreme. 
In November 1176, an emissary from the Byzantine Emperor arrived in England to see a man the Emperor referred to as the greatest and most illustrious ruler of the world. Henry's court was supreme, though his court never had quite the glamour and cachet that the French kings had. In fact, some commentators were rather depressed with the sobriety and seriousness of it all. But during 1174 and 1182, Henry became Europe's elder statesman, mediating in international disputes, arranging marriages between the families of different nations, such as Flanders and Portugal, for example, and even in 1185, being offered the throne of Jerusalem. But underneath this apparently secure exterior were the unresolved issues that would lead to Henry's final humiliation. The first was that the enmity between his sons continued to grow, despite the settlement of 1175. The second was the death of Louis VII of France and the accession of one of the most successful and at the same time most unattractive monarchs of France, Philip II. Philip II of France was 14 when he came to the throne. Henry seems to have taken the view that he should help and support the young king, and this he did, consistently refusing to take any advantage from the king's young age and initial vulnerability. For this, he was to be quite spectacularly poorly rewarded, For a while, Philip hid his true colours, but don't be fooled. He'd seen his bumbling father beaten time and time again, and he wanted revenge. The third issue was Henry's love life. Rosamond Clifford died in 1176. In his grief, Henry had an ornate tomb made at Godstone Nunnery where she'd died. A later bishop, incidentally, disapproving of Rosamond's reputation, ordered her tomb moved outside, and a new inscription was added which read, Here lies the rose of the world, not a clean rose. She no longer smells rosy, so hold your nose. Which seems rather unkind, though probably technically accurate. But that's not the problem. Do you remember that Alice of France had been brought to England at the age of eight in 1164 to be Richard's betrothed? Well, the marriage consistently failed to go ahead. And the reason seems to be that Henry may have been having an affair with her, with his son's betrothed, and that at some point... She may even have had his child. The French became increasingly frantic about it. In 1177, for example, a papal legate threatened to lay all of England under an interdict if the marriage didn't go ahead. It became a real thorn in the flesh of the French-Angevin relationship. It gave Philip II a stick with which to beat Henry. It really wasn't a clever idea, any way you look at it. But in the end, it was his sons that gave him the most trouble. They'd begun to fight amongst themselves. John, for example, had teamed up with Geoffrey and attacked Richard's lands in Poitou. Richard had retaliated with a raid. Henry tried to get them all together to do homage to the young king, to get things settled and agreed for the future. But Richard categorically refused to do any such thing. And then it all became a bit irrelevant when the young king died in 1182. Henry tried to rearrange things on the principle that, look, everyone moves up one. So now Richard was the eldest, and he could move up and take on the young king's previous role of King of England, Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou. And this meant that John should have Aquitaine rather than Richard. But unfortunately, Richard liked the idea of getting, but didn't like the idea of giving. So he blew a gasket and refused to give up Aquitaine. In 1185, Henry tried another approach then with John. He had the Pope's permission to make him King of Ireland, and this would solve him a few problems. The inability of Rory O'Connor to keep control, and John's lack of land. So, in 1185, he sent John over with an army to take the lordship of all Ireland. John made a complete pig's bottom of the whole thing. He mocked the Gaelic kings, poking fun at their long beard and clothes. 
His idleness and idiocy irritated and alienated the Norman barons. So after nine months he was back in England, the whole thing a complete disaster. Once again, Henry was let down by his son. And then, in 1186, another of his sons died, Geoffrey. And now there were just two left. Geoffrey died in an accident at a tournament trampled to death by horses, all of which rather confirmed his father's prejudice against the things. Geoffrey left three children by his wife, Constance of Brittany, two of whom were girls, and the third, born after his death, was his heir, Arthur. Constance was to rule Brittany until Arthur's majority, and Arthur was to cause his uncle John a lot of trouble. Trouble John was never going to recover from. But that's for a future podcast. Geoffrey's death meant that Henry now needed John for his dynastic plans, so there was no more talk of Ireland. But things now moved quickly to their end game. Philip II threw off any pretense of friendship with Henry. He'd now subdued his barons, he'd put his house in order, he'd improved the French finances, and he was now ready to take on the Angevin Empire. The excuse was a complaint from him about the treatment of his sister Alice, and in 1187 he attacked and captured two key fortresses in the Loire Valley, one of the keys to accessing the Angevin lands. Henry tried to resolve the issue, and he ended up conceding the two fortresses to buy peace, an ominously weak position that didn't bode well for the future. Henry was done with fighting, unless he could absolutely not avoid it. A year later, in 1188, Philip was back on the attack. His excuse was Richard's behaviour in attacking Toulouse, a move that Henry had begged Richard not to take. But Richard, as Gerald of Wales commented, had no interest in any plans that didn't involve the blood of his enemy. So Philip had the excuse to attack and capture the Auvergne and bury in southwest of France. Again, Henry and Philip met in November. Philip exploited the bad blood between Richard and Henry quite brilliantly. He insisted that Richard be recognised as Henry's heir to the whole empire and that he marry Alice right away. Henry prevaricated. We don't know why. Quite possibly he simply didn't get on with Richard. Or at least he wanted his favourite son John to get a good deal. But either way, it looked very suspicious to Richard. He didn't trust his father anymore. Henry's refusal made it look as though he wanted to make John King of England rather than Richard. So he joined his father's greatest enemy and prepared to destroy his father. By January 1189, things were falling apart. Brittany had now revolted as well. More of the thieves of the Loire were changing their alliance to Philip and Richard. Henry was tired, he was ill, and he was unprepared for war. He again met Philip under truce, but failed to come to terms. By the 12th of June, Richard and Philip had taken Le Mans, Henry's birthplace, and deep in Anjou. Henry fled, but Richard was close behind, only to be unhorsed by William the Marshal. Now the only son prepared to fight by Henry's side was his bastard son Geoffrey, who led Philip and Richard on a false trail to Normandy. Henry just would not fight. He was done with it. On the 30th of June 1189, ill and exhausted, he offered unconditional surrender. Henry was to recognise Richard as his heir, lose a chain of vital castles in Anjou and Touraine, and pay a 20,000 mark fine to Philip for the privilege. Henry couldn't care less. He simply had no desire to make war anymore. But ill and feverish as he was, he still felt the fury of his betrayal by Richard. As he gave his son Richard the kiss of peace, beaten and humiliated by his son and the man he'd helped and supported in his time of need, Henry growled, May the Lord spare me until I have taken vengeance on you. What he really wanted to know was who had plotted against him. 
So Philip, very kindly, gave him a list. And Henry's favourite son, John, was at the top of it. And it was this, not the treaty, not Richard. It was this that finished him. The treachery and betrayal of his favourite son. Geoffrey the illegitimate carried him back to Chinon, where for a few days Henry either lay blaspheming deliriously or in his lucid moments talking quietly to his friends who remained with him. And on the 6th of July, 1189, held by the one son who stayed by him, Geoffrey, he died and was buried in Fontevraud. He was 56. Richard wasn't there initially because he hadn't believed all the stories about Henry's death, so he turned up afterwards on his own. There William the Marshal saw him fall to his knees in prayer, then turn and stride out of the church to claim his inheritance. Henry's death was ignominious and brutal. He wasn't a superman, and he did do some daft things. The whole Alice thing, for example, is just remarkable. And maybe Eleanor had some excuse, therefore, for her treachery. But I think Henry comes down to us across all these years as a much more attractive person than any of his sons or his wife. Less vain and capricious than his wife, more intelligent and well-meaning than any of his sons. Like a later, more controversial figure of Oliver Cromwell, one of his most attractive attributes, actually, was that he seemed to have no interest in power for power's sake. He had no pretension. His court was workmanlike and informal compared to the ostentation of the French court. He strongly asserted the rights of his office, but was personally completely unpretentious. Henry had no grand vision or great design, it has to be said, but nonetheless, he laid the foundations of the modern English state. In 1165, Bishop Arnulf of Lycia described him as a great, indeed the greatest of monarchs. And although that's a big statement, and I'm not sure I'd quite go that far, he absolutely has the right to make that claim. And so there we are, the end of Henry II, and I've enjoyed his company very much. Before we move on, Chad emailed me with a load of interesting questions which I'll probably come back to, but one of them was to ask if the French and English rivalry we know and love today derives from this time. Now I have to confess I really don't know the answer, but I kind of doubt it's from here. We're still in a period where French is the language of the aristocracy, where England is just one part of a cross-channel empire. So I fancy that rivalry comes from later. The Hundred Years' War I would think would be a great candidate, but any views and ideas would be very welcome. And either way, thanks, Chad, for getting in touch. Very soon, we'll get to the great crusader and hero of his age, Richard Coeur de Lyon, the Lionheart. I say very soon because I'm going to take a bit of a break. Not very long, but I do fancy a week or so off. Recharge the batteries, do a bit of reading, get ahead, that sort of thing. But there'll be an episode next weekend, though, I'm delighted to say. One of the slightly frustrating things about doing this podcast is that you float past people you'd like to talk about more, but just don't have the space. So in the course of reading up and researching that sort of thing, I came across one Melisande of Outremer. Melisande has a really good blog called womenofhistory.blogspot.com and she's very kindly agreed to do a piece for the history of England. This will be about Elthrith, the political intriguer, wife and mother of kings, and possibly murder of stepsons. So I'll be reading the piece that Melisande has done next week as a guest slot. So that website again, womenofhistory.com blogspot.com And so thanks very much to all of you for listening. Please don't forget to post your comments on iTunes and historyofengland.com Thanks Chris or Facebook. Have a great week and I'll see you all again soon.